Before I begin the sermon this morning, I just wanted to say thank you to this church of the hospitality, not only that we've received over the past four months, but in particular over this past week as Brianna and I announced that we are expecting our first child. And so thank you to so much to you all who have showered us with love and calls and text messages and emails and, and the outpouring of love has been um, so wonderful. So thank you all for that and for the ways in which you are moving and working in our lives and that God is working in and through you. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. I'm thankful that God has given each of us unique gifts and graces. As Paul says in the New Testament that we are all different members of one body. The eye cannot say to a different piece of the body, to the ear, that you're not really part of the body in the same way that I can't say to you that you're not a part of the body because you do not possess the gifts I possess. And I'm grateful that many of you are capable of having the patience and the knowledge to be elementary school teachers because I don't know that's a gift God has given me. I'm thankful that God has given many of you gifts for understanding complicated structures and systems. And because of that, we have engineers who can design buildings and cities and wastewater treatment plants. I'm glad and I'm thankful that God has given many of you the abilities to understand complicated financial structures and rules because I definitely cannot, specifically when it comes to things related to taxes. A taxi, taxes might be the worst part of adulting that I've experienced. And I know I'm still pretty new to this adulting thing, and most days I pretend like I don't have to. But taxes, I've found, are unavoidable. Well, you shouldn't avoid them, at least. My first year paying taxes on my own, I was a seminary student driving from Atlanta back to Montgomery every other weekend to spend time with my future bride and her family. But I was living in Atlanta, and my total income for the year on all my W-2s was $11,000. And I decided that I was going to do my taxes on my own rather than paying for a CPA. And so I got the TurboTax program and decided I knew enough to be able to handle things by myself. I'm an adult now. I am adulting. And so I got on my computer the day taxes were due, like you probably some of you have experienced before. I've since learned you should not wait till the last second to do your taxes, or else you might end up like me, a 23-year-old who was told by the TurboTax program that I still owe the government $2,000 that was due that day, despite only making $11,000 in total income. I figured I probably must have done something wrong, but since it was the day it was due, I figured out, you know what, I've got to pay it anyway, and I put it on a credit card, which I learned later also is not the smartest thing you should do. The next year, I decided, okay, I'm not going to wait to the last second to file my taxes. I did it a few weeks in advance, and I used the TurboTax program again because Brianna and I were then married, and I figured filing jointly would help me with my tax refund, or how much I owed at least. And so I went through the program and I inserted, we made $18,000 as a couple jointly and we filed that and it came back that I still owed almost $2,000. And I told my dad, I called my dad immediately and I was like, hey dad, I just want to make sure that I'm doing this right. 
And he goes, no, you're not doing that, right? You should not owe $2,000. You've withheld appropriately on your W-2s, and you followed the... You, why don't you send me your documents, and I'll send them on to my CPA. And I'm very thankful for CPAs, <laughs> because I found out I did not owe $2,000, but was in fact owed $2,000. And that, to somebody who's making $18,000, is a big difference. <laughs> I am grateful for people who know a lot about, about taxes. But as I have been adulting more and more lately, I've realized how much taxes are part of our conversation in daily life. Whether it's the taxes that we owe when it comes time towards April, whether it's during our political seasons of of having candidates run based on certain tax platforms, some for, some against, some in favor, some opposed, some we like, some we don't. Taxes are just kind of part of being an adult. And my least favorite part of being an adult, and I'm going to be honest, I follow politics pretty closely. I like to pay attention to the news. But when things come up about taxes, I immediately get lost. Which is why I think, in general, I've never preached from this text. It was in our lectionary passage, and so the Revised Common Lectionary brings us this selection from Matthew's Gospel this morning. And typically, when I read this text and I see the word taxes, I'm like, okay, what's next? (laughs) I think, let's go on to the love and to the grace, and to the salvation, and to the resurrection. I don't want to talk about taxes. Who wants to talk about taxes? Apparently, Jesus did. And so did the Herodians and the Pharisees. Because as we dive into our text together this morning, we enter into an exchange between Jesus, the Pharisees, and the Herodians where they're having a discussion about taxes. And at the heart of this discussion, the relationship between a Jewish person and the Roman state. There are varying opinions about this matter between different factions within Judaism and ancient Israel, just as there are still varying opinions regarding the relationship between a person of faith and the government today. We often like to talk about a separation of church and state, but when does our religion not influence our politics or our politics our religion? And though we try to avoid these conversations, Jesus is right here talking about it. This is another perfect example where the Bible is not just an ancient book talking to ancient people about things in the past. The words of Jesus and the struggles of the people in the ancient Near East are just as applicable today asking questions of its readers as it did those in antiquity. So the Pharisees and the, and the Herodians, they approach Jesus with a very deliberate question because they want to trap this person who they see as an interloper in their affairs. We should know from the jump that there's something fishy about this whole scenario, and for a couple of reasons. The first is, Pharisees and Herodians do not typically work together. They agree on very little. Pharisees were the religious leaders for the Jewish faith. They saw the occupying forces of Rome as blasphemous and as a nuisance. The Herodians, who were also Jewish, but they were supporters of Herod of Antipas, who had install, was installed by the Roman government to be the king of the Jews, basically a Jewish governor who answers to the higher-ranking Roman officials. Because the Herodians were allied with the Roman government, they supported the emperor and his taxes, whereas the Jewish leaders had a few distinct problems with his tax. For one... They recognized that this tax was not a fair tax, and it actually hurt the poorest the most. And for the other reason, to pay this tax, you had to use a coin that had the emperor's insignia on it. It had the picture of the emperor, and ascribed on that 
was the fact that Emperor Tiberius is divine. If you remember from the Ten Commandments, God tells us that we are to have no other gods and to make no graven images or idols. And so the very exercise of using this coin is problematic for the Israelites. And so the collaboration of these two groups is necessary for their trap to work. The Herodians need the Pharisees, and the Pharisees need the Herodians. Together they come to Jesus, and they are just trying to butter him up at first. They offer a lot of backhanded compliments, some false praise. They say, teacher, we know that you are sincere and that you teach the way of God in accordance with truth and you show deference to no one for you do not regard people with partiality. Have you ever been with someone who offers you some sort of false praise or some sort of empty edification, kind of backhanded compliments to set up what they really want to say? They're trying to cushion the blow. In the South, we have a very particular way of doing that that is, might be unique to our culture, but is not unique to any one individual because I can almost guarantee the significant majority of us have used this phrase at some point in our lives. If someone doesn't fully understand what's going on or they don't quite fit in, we'll bless their heart. When I used to sing at the dinner table, they would tell my grandmother, well, bless his heart, he just doesn't know any better. Or when I would hide my signed papers from my parents because my grades were less than stellar, my teacher would say, well, bless his heart, he's just embarrassed he's not as smart as the other kids. Or every time I would strike out at Little League, the other parents would tell my mom and dad, bless his heart, I'm sure he's good at art or something. Bless his heart is the modern backhanded equivalent of what the Herodians and the Pharisees are offering Jesus. Everyone knows that neither of these groups like Jesus. Jesus knows these people don't like him. So for them to offer this type of flattery is obviously insincere and disingenuous. After they break the ice with their backhanded compliments, they spring their trap. And they're very clever with the question they ask. They say to Jesus, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? You see, if you think about it, this trap is foolproof. They have put Jesus in a no-win situation. There's only two answers to this question. Yes, it's lawful, or no, it's not lawful. And to answer with either of these, Jesus will get in trouble. If Jesus says, no, that according to the law of God, it is not lawful for the Jews to pay the tax, he could be seen as a traitor against the state and a leader of sedition, a crime punishable by death. And if Jesus says yes, he could be willfully breaking God's law by practicing idolatry. And he could lose the support of the common people who are being overburdened by these taxes that weigh heavily on their financial realities. It seems like they got him. We trapped Jesus. If he says yes, he's lost. If he says no, he's lost. We've got him. So what does Jesus do? He calls him out. He says, why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? He doesn't start with yes or no. He says, why are you putting me to the test? If Gus Malzahn was on the sidelines of this interaction, he'd give out a big boom because he wasn't going to be trapped. Jesus then says, show me the coin used for this tax. This is a clever tactic by Jesus because he reinforced their hypocrisy by showing all the bystanders watching this exchange that the people who are trying to trap him as being idolatrous are themselves already committing idolatry by bringing the coin into the temple. Holding up the coin, he asked them, whose head is on this coin and what is his title? And they told him it's the emperor's. 
and that the emperor is known to be divine by the Romans. So Jesus answers them in a way that nobody expected. He's supposed to say yes, or he's supposed to say no. But what he says is, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's. But he doesn't stop there. He also says, and give unto God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. This is such a great text, and I have to admit, I've dealt with it very little. I've never preached on it, like I said, because I was always intimidated when I came across that word tax. I always thought that this whole story was just about money and about understanding what is right and wrong when it comes to taxes. But as we think about this word from the scripture this morning, there seems to be more than meets the eye. Isn't that often the case with the Bible? That there's something going on beneath the story? There's something that the gospel writers are trying to tell us about Jesus? There's something new happening? And here's what I see in this text. A very distinct reality that we should learn about the divine. You can't trap God. We have a tendency as Christians, and really just as people, to want God to look and act and be just like us and in the ways that we're comfortable with. As we grow and mature, we have a desire for things in life to be rational and to fit within our worldview and circumstances. And the same is true for our relationship with God. We like to be comfortable, and we like to have things figured out. So when a matter of faith is challenging or problematic, it is simpler not to address it or try to reason through it, but just to brush it off to the side or not consider it as being possible or true. But guess what, friends? God is God, and we are not. And yes, I get paid to think that. Thank you for helping me come to simple truths as a church. Thank you for for supporting me as a pastor as I come up with this pontificating in my life to come up with something so brilliant as I am not God. But you know what, friends? I need to be reminded of that a lot. I am not God. And so oftentimes the things that I might think about God might be of my own construction and not exactly who God is or what God is saying. God is so much bigger than what we can ask for or imagine. We cannot put God in a box. The Pharisees and the Herodians wanted Jesus to conform to their ways of thinking. And if not, they were going to expose him for being a fraud. But Jesus did not play their game. He didn't even avoid the question. He just changed the whole conversation. They were playing spades, and he said, checkmate. No matter how much we may want to, we cannot trap God. We cannot outsmart God. You know something I find ironic is that we quote the Ten Commandments a lot and we consider them a lot when it comes to issues of we should not murder or covet and we should honor our father and mother, but often we speak very little about those first two commandments, having no other gods before the one true God and not making false idols. We think, oh, we love God. We know there's only one God, so we've got those two covered. We're not making false idols because we don't, especially in Protestantism, we don't have totems. We don't have a lot of iconography. We don't have false idols in our life. We don't have other gods in our life. But the irony to me is the sin we think we struggle with the least might actually be the most pervasive and prevalent. Without realizing it, we have created idols and false gods throughout our life. We have graven images 
that we worship all the time. And more than anything, those idols are our own false realities that we have tried to project upon God. We've tried to create our own gods, our own beliefs, our own ideas, and that God should look like us as opposed to us looking like God. But see, here's the thing, friends. God created us in God's image. The imago dei is what we're trying to recapture. We did not create, create God. And we definitely would not have created God to look like us if we did. Because God is God. And we are not. The Herodians and the Pharisees decided that they could, they could either get Jesus to expose himself as a fraud or to be like one of them. They thought they could trap Jesus. But Jesus thought, saw straight through their machinations and he said, I am bigger than your false limitations. I do not have to be who you say I am. I am more than you could ever ask for or imagine. And so, friends, today I ask of us all, what false idols have we built up in our own lives? What ways have we projected our own identity in an effort to create a false deity? Are there beliefs that we have grown up with that cause us to be blinded to the new truths God might be speaking today? Are we beholden to the ideologies of those who came before us as opposed to seeking after the new truths and the things that God is saying today in our present? I pray that we consider all the ways God is moving and speaking. I pray that we stop trying to limit God and that we stop trying to put God in a box. I pray that we let God be God. I'm thankful for a church to journey alongside who has shown me the love of God in so many ways these past few months. I've seen us seeking God together, and so I know that we as a church, we're on a good path. I've seen God at work unloading 2,000 pumpkins right across the street. I've seen God at work in our compassion ministries, in the way we serve at Dumas Wesley. I've seen God at work in the children's ministry, in the youth ministry. And so I know God is still speaking today. And so I pray that together we seek how God is speaking into our lives and not try to tell God who God has to be and let just God be God. As Charles Wesley said, thou hidden source of calm Repose, thou all-sufficient love divine, my help and refuge from my foe. Secure I am if thou art mine, and low from sin and grief and shame, I hide me, Jesus, in thy name. Let it be so. Amen.